Pydantic has become a core building block for many Python projects. After five years, it's time for a remake. With version 2, the plan is to rebuild the internals, with benchmarks already showing a 17 times performance improvement, and cleanup of the API. This sounds great, but what does it mean for us? Well, Samuel Colvin, the creator of Pydantic, is here to share his plan for Pydantic version 2. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 376, recorded August 4th, 2022. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Compiler from Red Hat. Listen to an episode of their podcast to demystify the tech industry over at talkpython.fm slash compiler. And it's brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Get early stage support for your startup and build that startup you've been dreaming about. Visit talkpython.fm slash founders hub to apply for free. Transcripts for this and all of our episodes are brought to you by Assembly AI. Do you need a great automatic speech-to-text API? Get human-level accuracy in just a few lines of code. Visit talkpython.fm slash assemblyai. Samuel, welcome back to Talk Python to Me. It's great to be back. It was, when was it? It was in the middle of, it was in COVID, wasn't it? I seem to remember. It sometime was last year. core COVID, yes. It was just 15 months ago. Yeah. Yeah, April I think it was sometime last year. Yeah, I was in my attic. In the, yeah, <laughs> I'm now in the office. It's a representative. Locked in, exactly. Locked down in the house and... It's great to have you back. We talked about Pydantic back then. Obviously, we're talking about Pydantic now as well. I would say it's it's grown tremendously since then. It was already quite popular then. Yeah, I think it's. I, I don't have right now off the top of my head good metrics on you know insofar as you can quantify the growth of these things. Uh, I think it yeah it's it's grown a lot. But I think the feeling for me is it's become a lot of a lot more companies and a lot more people have started to rely on it, and it's become a kind of core tool that they expect to to work in the way you expect PyTest or Django to work. Not quite perhaps at those levels, but it, it, moving in that direction. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I'm probably jumping the gun, but at the beginning of this year, I was thinking about it and I was obviously super proud of what of how many people were using Pydantic and how useful it was being, but I wasn't quite so proud of its internals, which is why I started thinking about what it would look like to, to kind of start again, because obviously V2 was an opportunity to to break stuff, not that we haven't broken things in minor releases when we shouldn't have done, but like to formally break things and, and do it right, where it was obviously, I guess, wrong from the beginning. The, the goal, I'm sure, is not to go out and break things, but sometimes in order to take years of, of learning and experience and usage and turn that into the way you think it should be, some things may have to break, right? Yeah, I think that when I first released Pydantic, it wasn't, I've subsequently built projects I thought were going to be really popular and there's been, you know, varied in their success, but... I literally built Pydantic for me and put it on, you know, put it on PyPy and then put it on Hacker News to see what would happen. But because of that, I, I thought about there were, some, there were some esoteric design decisions that were the stuff I wanted. But in reflect on reflection, they're not right for a popular library used by lots of people. Uh, strictness being, I guess, the most obvious example, but a bunch of other stuff. Um, we'll talk about strictness. We'll talk about a lot of these changes. But why do you think it was popular? I think it came along at the right time. 
yeah, I think I it came along when tight pints were just getting popular in Python. They had been around in some guys for like ever, right? You could do something with them in 2.7, but they were just beginning to become a thing. Uh, MyPy was coming out, but I suppose I was not the only person who who was frustrated by the idea that they didn't have teeth, that they were there. But but it seemed kind of weird, right? If you came from a uh, a Rust or a C++ or a C background, you know, types are everything. And the idea that they were there, but they meant nothing was a bit of an anathema to me. And I just it started off with a, can I, can I make them work a bit? And that was five years ago and here we are. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree that coming along at the right time was probably part of the magic. I think there was just some, some libraries and some frameworks who decided these types should have meaning. Like you said, there was a couple of web frameworks Obviously, most notably Fast API, but there were other ones as well who were taking the ideas of here's some type definitions in Python, and what could we what could we do with that? Like, could we actually make that mean something to help the developer experience? I think that's true, and I you know I guess I got some stuff right in doing doing documentation quite well quite early on. I know that like it wasn't perfect, but it, you know it did the job at the time. Fast API and Sebastian's you know Sebastian's amazing in lots of things, but his his capacity to write documentation that is almost a story that almost leads you, you know, is enjoyable to read in the way that documentation normally isn't. Uh, obviously, yeah, being adopted by FastAPI, like strapped rockets to Pydantic. But I think the other thing that made an enormous difference is that I came to Pydantic as a developer, not a, not a typing academic. And I know there's a lot of debate about whether or not the typing world of Python get moves a bit too far into the world of, of like the theoretical. But I always wanted, it. for me, it was always obvious that a string of one, two, three should be coerced to an int. And there's a lot of people who will say that's not useful. And then there's a million different ways in which they use it and they don't even realize because you think it's really obvious when you have ID equals one, two, three in a URL that that one, two, three is, is an integer. But obviously when you're passing a URL, there's, there's no, no way to say that is actually definitely an int. So some of the, some of the lacks stuff, the coercion, I think has been the thing that sets Pydantic apart from some of the other libraries that were perhaps more formally correct. But I would argue less useful in lots of contexts. Well, I also think the more that you work on the web where what you're accepting is out of your control, you want more help and you want more validation and you want more guardrails. Uh, people are posting JSON documents of who knows what to you. <laughs> there, There's the query strings and the URL parameters that are always strings no matter what they're supposed to be and, and stuff. So yeah, I think Pydantic especially fit well in the API side of things. I also think there's a there's a, the risk of getting a bit kind of like fuzzy and cod philosophy about this. There's a like there's a value in remembering what it was like to not be that good a developer and making it easy to use for beginners. And there's definitely a world of developers who who want to whose primary interest it feels is proving how much they know rather than making it easy for people. And Sebastian is even better at this than, than I am, but I think Pynantic does a, a good job of it, of being easy to use. And if you're new to developing, you know, you and I know the difference between bytes and string, and obviously we would, you know, laugh through our nose at anyone who got them confused. But the fact is that when you're new, they look like two identical things and one's got a B at the beginning and the other one's got an F at the beginning. And what's the, what does any of that mean? Right? Like, yeah. And so more that part. Yeah. Right. And so the fact that, that you can pass bytes to us, to a string field saves people a lot of head scratching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It certainly has taken on a life. Uh, quite quite a life in the Python space, and many many different frameworks and libraries are dependent upon it, which is great. Some yep. stats uh, that you put in this article we're going to talk, or this plan that we're going to talk about, it's, there's 72,000 public repos that I'm guessing are expressing some kind of dependency on yep. uh, Pedantic, and then 
10,000 GitHub stars. Yeah, that's coming up on 11. That's that's pretty amazing. And the, yeah, and the download count, I think it was 24,000 when I lo- a month. So, sorry, 24 million a month uh, when I last looked from, from PyPy. And that doesn't include distributions. Identic is distributed with, I think, every major um, Linux distribution. So the downloads in those contexts won't, won't be included in that. So yeah, it's it's like it's being it's widely adopted and, and it seems to be getting more widely adopted as, as time goes on. Uh, just to back up what you're saying, Tune Army Captain out there says Pydentic is very easy to onboard. Yeah, it's just because it it does what you would expect it to, what you would want it to do. So uh, let's see. One thing I wanted to sort of touch on a little bit before we got into the plan officially is let's just highlight some of the frameworks that are making core use of Pydantic. Obviously, we talked about FastAPI, right? For people who don't know, maybe tell them real quick, what is FastAPI? FastAPI is an amazing web framework that allows you to, I think if you scroll down, I think that probably pictures will be better than words. Um, yeah. <laughs> you use Pydantic and, and types generally to define what, what data people can pass to your, to your endpoints, primarily as per the name for designing, for developing APIs. Um, and yeah, it makes it super simple. I think there's an example down down somewhere a bit further down on the on the homepage. Uh, maybe there isn't. Maybe it's on getting started. But uh, there we are. Um, yeah, you see here whether it be URL parameters like uh, item ID um, or query parameters or obviously the body. Um, they're all validated with with Pydantic, which like cuts out enormous amount of the work of building building APIs. Absolutely. And then there's a couple of things that are interesting. You have Pydantic models, which are Python classes with type you know, a field colon type. So you express the type information about it. And then you can say this API function just takes one of these and it'll automatically pull that data in and validate it using Pydantic through like the body. But then also you can express that that is the response model or the input model and it'll use open API to actually generate the documentation. So there's all these different ways in which so, right, so, so API is made better. Yeah. So the, the powerful thing about FastAPI is that by defining a relatively small amount here. We just defined it as like a three-line function to define our our endpoint. We get JSON schema for for the input. We get uh, so then we get docs built off off that. When um, we get obviously docs on the return type, if we if we annotated it with a um, with what's returned. Um, so yeah, from, from and obviously the the value. And I can see from your from your tabs where you're going to go next. Like you define something in one place, and you can then use it for your input and for your return type. And then in your database. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so yeah, here's the this is the most well-known example for using it on the, the API layer, the web layer. But there's also some cool examples of, of databases, as, as you <laughs> pointed out there, right? Yeah. So did I, this I, surprise I, you when you saw these? I mean, you probably had the API stuff in mind, but did the database surprise you? It it did a bit. I mean, I, I like haven't looked at Beanie in lots of detail, but like, yeah, it's 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 like yeah, it's amazing that, that these things are coming along and being built and uh, leveraging. Like yeah, leveraging what Pydantic can do. Um, I'm not a big ORM fan myself. I'm a bit old-fashioned. I like to write my SQL. Um, not sorry, I like to write SQL. Uh, uh, not my SQL. Um, so I haven't actually used used them. I have to say, but FastAPI I've used a lot, and I've I've found absolutely amazing. But I I, I won't can't talk about uh, Beanie or SQL model beyond uh, beyond having had a, a quick uh, quick look. Yeah, so I just wanted to give a quick sort of uh, awareness shout out to Beanie, which is an async ODM object document mapper from MongoDB, like an ORM, but there's no R, so B for document, based on on motor. So it's pretty cool. It takes the asynchronous driver from MongoDB and then Pydantic, you just express your models 
you know, your documents as Pydantic models, which map really well because you can have hierarchies of Pydantic classes and models, which maps perfectly to document databases. So yeah, this is actually what TalkPython, the uh, Python Bytes websites are built on, which has been really nice. And then obviously, Sebastian Ramirez created SQL model, which is the same idea, but for SQL, right? It's built on top of SQL Alchemy, but you actually define your classes as Pydantic models. And then that finds a way to sort of work with SQL Alchemy to still do the same stuff that it traditionally has done. So yeah, I think there was one of the complaint. One of the complaints people had was that I, they were having to define their data twice. They would have a Pydantic model and then they would have a, a SQL Alchemy model. And so, yeah, it's, it's not very surprising in a way that we found a way to, to combine them into one. Um, again, I, I'm not I'm not uh, an expert on the internals of, of SQL model, but it, yeah, the two things look similar enough that like at a, at a first pass, you would think it would make kind of sense to yeah squish them together. And one interesting thought about this is if you're going to work in SQL model or you're going to work in Beanie or something like that, and you decide, no, I actually want to switch to a relational database or I want to switch from a relational database over to MongoDB or something like that. If it's all expressed as Pythantic models. Like, how close are you? You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 very little work to sort of make that transition. So it's it's cool that Pythantic is this kind of like yeah. And uh, there's that's actually a cool layer. project. There's a cool project that I was discussing with uh, Adrian. I think it's Garcia yesterday, which is using Pythantic models to define uh, data coming in from already uh, Google uh, Google PubSub and from AWS SQS and potentially from Redis. Okay. So again, it's the same idea that like once you define your models in Python, it wouldn't be that hard to switch from AWS to, to Google or even to like a database type uh, tool like Redis. Teddy out in the audience says, we use data model code generator to generate our Pydantic models from JSON schemas. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. So so obviously, just as you can generate a JSON schema from from a Pydantic model, there's a third-party tool that lets you you go the other way and, and generate Pydantic models. I Obviously, won't do everything for you, validators and stuff, but it, it gives you the first first start. Let me throw one more out there before we dive into the plan, which is where we're going. How about JSON to Pydantic Converter? Have you seen this I, website? I had I I did not know that existed um, until now, but but I guess it's using that same tool under the hood, is it? Or we'll, we'll watch it. Maybe it's, watch not, this. it's it, not. It may it may be. I'm not actually sure. Uh, I haven't seen it mention it, but it doesn't really say so. I'd say um, not because it doesn't look that's not JSON schema, right? That's uh, just like, no, you, what you do is you give it an example. Um, that's very cool. You give it a, an example JSON document. I'm uh, till 27. So you give it a <laughs> JSON document, and it will actually. When I first heard about this, well, Pydantic will already generate JSON. Like, no, 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 the other way. You give it a JSON that's result, amazing. and it will generate the, the data model by looking at it. And it actually, even if you have like hierarchical stuff it'll create multiple base model derived classes and all sorts this thing is this is this is pretty sweet right here this thing that's pretty powerful kudos to whoever built it I, yeah i hadn't heard of it but yeah and i've thrown massively complicated json documents at it and it, it is like well it's going to take eight classes but here you go and it just writes them all it's it's fantastic this portion of talk python enemy is brought to you by the compiler podcast from red hat just like you, I'm a big fan of podcasts, and I'm happy to share a new one from a highly respected and open source company, Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. With more and more of us working from home, it's important to keep our human connection with technology. With Compiler, you'll do just that. The Compiler podcast unravels industry topics, trends, and things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with people who know it best. 
These conversations include answering big questions like, what is technical debt? What are hiring managers actually looking for? And do you have to know how to code to get started in open source? I was a guest on Red Hat's previous podcast, Command Line Heroes, and Compiler follows along in that excellent and polished style we came to expect from that show. I just listened to episode 12 of Compiler, How Should We Handle Failure? I really valued their conversation about making space for developers to fail so that they can learn and grow without fear of making mistakes or taking down the production website. It's a conversation we can all relate to, I'm sure. Listen to an episode of Compiler by visiting talkpython.fm slash compiler. The link is in your podcast player's show notes. You can listen to Compiler on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Pocket Cast, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And yes, of course, you could subscribe by just searching for it in your podcast player, but do so by following talkpython.fm slash compiler so that they know that you came from TalkPython to me. My thanks to the Compiler Podcast for keeping this podcast going strong. Let's talk about the plan. First of all, before we get into the plan, I just want to say well done on this. You know, we covered this on the Python Bytes podcast three or four weeks ago, something like that. And the response was, oh my gosh, this is incredibly detailed, incredibly well thought out. I think somebody in the audience commented like, there are companies that have been created and founded with less thought <laughs> about the future and doing than that. So yeah, nicely done. Thank you. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of um, a lot of time, uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, PyCon talking about this uh, to people and say, you know, talking about little bits of it. There was a lot of it in my brain. And Sebastian, who is kind enough to sponsor me, but also obviously is maintaining FastAPI, was kind of asking me what it was going to do. And I kept being like, oh, it'll do that thing and it'll do this thing. And then I, I got to the point of realizing, and probably about 70% of issues on Pydantic's issue tracker, I reply with, don't worry, it'll work in V2. And I realized I got to the point where I really owed the community an answer to, to some of these questions. Uh, in fact, the first bit of feedback I got from it was, I, I'm dyslexic and I'm quite slow at reading. And I those uh, red time... Uh, notes never make any sense to me. So I just put 10 minutes in at the very beginning and then uh, <laughs> forgot about it as I extended it and extended it. And the first feedback was, great article, but how the hell is anyone reading that in 10 minutes? And so I <laughs> pulled a new number out of thin air. But yeah, So yeah, it's 25 minutes reading time, which I think is actually fairly accurate, depending on how thoughtful you think about these these various things. Someone had, um, I've, got to, I've got to have a shout out to one joke on Twitter. Someone was like, when it said 10 minutes, they were like, 10 minutes to parse, two days to validate, which I thought. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Well done. Very, very uh, pedantic like. Okay. Why do we need this plan? What's why, so like why I said, to start? So I think, I mean, like stepping back a bit, most projects, once they're mature and in, in widespread use, like people don't sit down and tear them to pieces, right? Uh, they mostly stick with the same kind of warts and people polish the edges. But like that, that, that there's not a like from scratch rebuild. And often when there is from scratch rebuilds, it, it offends a lot of people because they don't know what's happening and you know they're like the, the you know the cost of migrating is quite high and they they're turned off it. So but I thought that there was there was enough wrong with the internals of Pydantic and there was enough opportunity to do stuff way better. And there was enough like there was enough reason to do that because there were enough people using it that it was worth me sitting down and spending six months, but we've passed six months building it right. Uh, and like I say, this is, you know. There was one of the one of the like not stats, but one of the my observations was uh, looking at. So there was a there was a Stack Overflow uh, survey of what of what technology people are using, and FastAPI had I don't know what percentage, but like six percent uh, market share, right? 
And then below it, they were talking about clouds and which clouds have what market share. Now, if you assume the same number of people are using web frameworks as are using clouds, which is an approximate approximation, but not a mad approximation, then you would say the fast API and therefore Pydantic have a bigger market share than Oracle and IBM combined in slightly different markets and obviously yeah. without the without the revenue to go with it. But like uh, it makes you realize that like getting this right has a massive effect on on lots of people and on uh, yeah. And, and and secondly that I don't have a clue how many how many times Pydantic validates data a day between, you know, Netflix and uh, Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft and everyone else. But it's a high number, right? And so the environmental impact of making Pydantic 10 times faster and therefore consume 10 times less CO2 to, to do a validation is, I suspect, not trivial. It's virtually impossible to, to get an accurate number, but something real. That's a really interesting way to think of it with, you know, almost having a responsibility to lessen the compute load. And when, you know, you run in your own website and it does a couple of users an hour or whatever, like who cares, right? But when you're talking a million requests a second or whatever it is across all the, the different people using all the different frameworks across, right? That actually adds up, I suspect. And, and yeah, like, suspect think, about, well. think about uh, a web server, assuming your database is doing all of the heavy lifting uh, that it should be doing. What's the ne- next biggest thing? Well, there's uh, 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 TLS termination. That's expensive. But like, again, that's done by some optimized C in Nginx or, or probably outside your code completely if you're using a platform provider. What's the next biggest thing that your code is doing CPU-wise? Well, it's it's data validation, basically. Yeah, conversion, valid, uh, serialization, deserialization, validation, and all that lives in the pedantic realm, yeah? Also, I talked about two frameworks, and I know there are others, um, like Pydastic for Elasticsearch, where the, the validation and the data exchange is the database exchange as well, right? That's That could be very important for, if you make this much faster, I don't know the numbers for Beanie precisely, but I know that a lot of those ORM ODMs, if you go and query and get like 10,000 rows back, the vast majority of that time is how do I construct and fill out 10,000 objects in memory, right? And, and if you make Pydantic faster and Pydantic is that object, well, there's yeah, a huge it's, bonus. It's right more there. than just, and I think the other thing to say is we've talked about uh, web applications and you know, from fast API being the kind of most high profile user of, uh, of Pydantic. We talk about that a lot, but a lot of its usage, if you look at uh, stuff that Explosion AI are doing, it's in data science and AI. And it's, yeah, it's exactly that. It's like data sanitization into and out of uh, models or into and out of databases. And, and there you are talking about like, you know, really massive amounts of data. Absolutely. All right, let's get into it. So we talked about the plan. Uh, how about the, the roadmap, the timeline, things like that? So we're behind a bit, but we're not too far behind. I released uh, version 0.1 of Pydantic Core yesterday, so that uh, I'll come to what that means in a minute. But but that's that was the that's the first step of the plan. Um, I'm about I think I've either clo- closed or merged 25 PRs today, trying to get through Pydantic and get get version uh, uh, V1.10 out. So I'm I'm halfway. I'm not halfway through. I'm some bit of the way through two to be to be precise. Um, right. Yeah, and so I, what, what you were talking about in the plan, as you said, there's a bunch of open PRs, a bunch of open issues. Let's merge in as much of that as possible to sort of capture it and then move forward in this this rewrite that we'll talk about. Right. Yeah, exactly. So get get 1.10 out, which is which is the same same basic code base with a, a bunch more stuff added that I've because I had a had a job and was really busy earlier in the, in the year. I kind of dropped the ball on reviewing those PRs and they they kind of got out of control. Um, but get them 
uh, dealt with and then get to a kind of clean slate and then and then uh, make the big move from uh, yeah from v1.10 to, to v2. You do talk about there being breaking changes. We'll get into the, some specific details there, but probably the most relevant to this entire rewrite is this thing you're calling the pydantic dash core. Yeah. yeah. So uh, this started off as a, as a kind of small experiment with me saying, what would kind of thought experiment, what would, what would pydantics what would Pydantic look like if it was implemented in Rust? What would its uh, internals look like if they were implemented in Rust? And that experiment effectively worked. And, and sure enough, Pydantic core is, is written in Rust and does all of the, the core data validation. Uh, and it will do a lot of the serialization. I haven't built that yet, but that I intend to build into Rust. So there's an awful lot that will stay in Python. Um, but uh, yeah, Pydantic core is written, written in Rust and uses the amazing PyO3 uh, Library to bindings to to write Rust code that that um, that's callable from Python. Um, uh, Maybe uh, tell yeah. people about Pyo three real quick because this is how you write it and write the code in Rust, but then expose it to the rest of the Python yes. aspects of so, so I guess right? yeah Pyo three. I'm not a good C developer, and I'm going to use the wrong terminology and be shouted at. But like it takes the Python ABI for C, so how you would write C code to be used from Python. And effectively makes that available in Rust. Rust has has great interop with C, um, and so yeah, it basically takes all those types and exposes them all in a type safe or type safe way that you can then consume. So if we look, if we stop here and we look at like uh, Summer's uh, a string, right? Where uh, PyO3 is taking care of all the hard work of you passing two uh, ints from Python into this function, converting them to U size, then the Logic inside is, is pure Rust. It's adding two U sizes and uh, converting the result to a string. And then again, uh, PyO3 is taking care of returning it, and in particular, using this py result result type in Rust. Without going too far down the rabbit hole of how Rust works, Rust has an amazing model for how to deal with errors that basically stops you from ever ignoring an exception or, or what they call an error. Um, and that is that's these results, which are basically they would call it an enum, but from Python world, think of it like a union, which is either okay, it went well, or error, it, it was an error. And so you have right, to okay. return an, an okay, or you have to return an error. And when you consume that in Rust, you have to have to deal with the error case. Uh, it won't let you ignore it. Um, but that that maps really nicely into Python exceptions. So here we're returning okay, so we'll get a result. But if we used pi error and return that, then you would get an exception when you when you call the function. Mm-hmm. The, Interesting. The, so the powerful thing about Rust, but obviously it's faster. Everyone knows that. And it, it does it does mean that Pydantic Core is much faster than Pydantic and Pydantic 2 will be much faster than Pydantic 1. I think it's probably quite rare to see a library in a version update get get significantly faster, let alone like 10 to 50 times faster as Pydantic 2 will be. So that's been achieved. But there are other advantages that you get which are perhaps less obvious. Um, one of them is like Recursion without a performance penalty. That means that Pydantic uh, core data validation is is truly recursive all the way down and allows you to build effectively any crazy combination of different validators uh, into each other. Because yeah, validators are this basically pile of uh, think of them as classes in Python. They're not they're not classes in Rust, but that, that call each other recursively all the way down. Um, uh, and you can one of the other advantages is like tiny functions. Which allow you to split code up and make it easier to edit one thing without breaking other things. Uh, right, because in again, Python, it's, like, it's not entirely obvious to people coming from languages like C 
C-sharp, Rust, and so on, that just calling a function itself is pretty expensive, relatively speaking, in Python. Yeah, I, I, I'm on the edge. I'm on the like wing of people who would say, if you're worrying about the overhead of calling a function, you're probably not writing the right language most of the time, right? Like it's yeah. yes, it's yes, it's a big number, but it's a tiny number in in most in most contexts. But I think there's definitely a world in which like end users, people building web apps in Python, definitely it's for for companies should and will be using Python. But the libraries that underpin that that they use, super, there's big value. Value is a complex term in open source in itself, but let's use the word value and ignore that what it might mean in, in implementing those libraries, the, the second step down. So the Pydantic, the, the HTTP um, framework uh, in, in Rust or in, in, I think in Rust basically, because those are the, well, there are three libraries that have real bindings for Python. C, I don't want to be writing lots of C and I don't think many people do. Uh, well, I'll, I'll say that. Uh, Rust, obviously, and then there's C++ and Boost. And I think the, the developers of uh, PyO3 came from using Boost and they, they basically built PyO3 to be better. Uh, and I, yeah, I've used Boost a bit, but I found PyO3 to be, to be really impressive. I think your comment about should you be worrying about those loops is super relevant. There's certain libraries where Pydantic is certainly among them. It's used so much that these little tiny portions, you know, probably just a very small slice of the code that is applicable, is actually a pretty significant hit in terms of overall performance. You know, you think like SQL Alchemy and like the serialization, deserialization bit, right? That's a small part of the library, but that's something that just is ever, you know, omnipresent, right? And this internal validation and stuff that you're thinking about doing in PyO3 or in Rust, combine it with PyO3, it makes a big difference, even if it's only a small, relatively small portion of the part that people perceive it to be, you know? Exactly. And, and coming back to my environmental point, you know, the environment doesn't care if you take a flight. Uh, or I take a flight, or I miss a flight. But like, obviously, the environment does care if we can reduce the number of flights taken worldwide by ten, worldwide by ten percent. And because of Pydantic's widespread use, that's why I'm saying getting Pydantic to be ten percent faster. You probably won't notice, but overall, we will hopefully make uh, computation in the cloud a tiny bit uh, uh, a tiny bit faster. Absolutely. Question from the audience: Magnus says, "Will user be able to write data validators in Rust for Pydantic too?" That is a difficult and complex question. There is an open issue on Pydantic Core's uh, issue tracker about it, and I have proposed a way that it might be possible. Um, I would The story of shared libraries, DLLs, in Rust is not, is not quite as pretty as it could be, and I really don't want to build basically another way of sharing dependencies beyond PyPy where you're like, okay, you, can, you need to install Pydantic from PyPy, and then you need to install this other package, perhaps from PyPy, and then you need to use this other code to link the DLL so that we can do a, you know, dynamically link those libraries. That sounds like an enormous maintenance overhead for, for, for me and for, for people doing it because people find it hard enough to, to share code and use code from PyPy. So, uh, PyPI. So, um, yeah. And then how do you, how do you deploy that and how do you get it compiled? Right. And, so so very that? briefly, my, my theory for an answer is actually, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now, but there's an issue that I think explains it and I'm happy to talk about it there. And sure. I can, I'll if find you don't add it, it now, you don't have to live with the consequences of choosing That's that. That's the other thing, right? That like someone comes <laughs> along and has a really bright idea and in 10 years time, I'm <laughs> still answering questions about how to make it work. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You already mentioned the performance, but just working our way through the plan here, the next step is to say, hey, the benchmarks indicate this is four to 50 times faster. And in general, 17x is kind of what you're guessing for something reasonable. 
and, and not uh, not guessing um as in just uh, the the benchmarks uh on pydantic core that are run run on every commit ha- a lot of them have alternate like uh, equivalents in mm. in pydantic 1.9 and so that's that's the speed up that we're seeing um there are a few more optimizations i can make there are a few uh it'll get a tiny bit slower i guess when it's wrapped in pydantic uh in, in python but a tiny amount so yeah i think those are realistic numbers yeah that's a, a huge difference now you say when validating a model how does that performance compare to treating a pydantic class instance you know how much how much faster does I, like using it in python get versus 17 times faster doing the validation you should yeah, get your okay. model back so that that is going from uh, a python object a Python dict, let's say, of your input data to a uh, instantiated class instance instance of of the of your model. Next up is strict mode. One of the things I really like about Pydantic is how it will take data that is could be the right thing, but is not actually the right thing. Like you said, the string one two three, but you really want an integer, the actual number one two three, and it just says, you know, this is what it's. This is what we would do if I had to do it myself. I would parse the string and, and convert it over and so on. And that just happens. But some people don't want this clever behavior, right? Yeah, exactly. And and I think that there are, you know, there are legitimate cases for that. I think there are there are some people who are wanting it whose cases I, I don't think are entirely legitimate, but like, yeah, I totally get why why in some contexts it's it's valuable. And so yeah, so it's built in. Yeah, you have you have that switch um from from the word go. One of the really cool things that this solves, uh, kind of uh, not by mistake, but um, as a side effect, is uh, validating unions. We basically run through every member of the union in strict mode first and try and validate in strict mode and then validate in lax mode. Uh, and therefore, for example, if you had a union of uh, int and string and then you passed it the string one, two, three, uh, it wouldn't get converted to int. Uh, as it would do in historically in Pydantic. Um, Pydantic now has smart union, but like it's not perfect. But this solves some edge cases like that uh, and some, okay. some much more confusing ones than that. Nice. Related to that is, I would say, is this conversion table that you're putting out, right? What's the story? Yeah. So, here? so there's, there's two things. There's this, like, I kind of called it COD philosophy the other day, like this, like, rule for when you would uh, convert something and when you wouldn't. Um, and actually, it's come out to be to be really useful in us thinking about when we shouldn't shouldn't convert things. Because to take an example, we have been in Pydantic uh, v1. You can coerce a set to a list, and that mostly seems to make sense. And it's something that you might want to do in lots of contexts. But actually, if you go up a bit, the single and intuitive uh, means we can't converse convert a set to to a list because you don't always get the same output when you convert a set to a list because the order of things can change. And so using this rule has been helpful in trying to be more consistent about what we what we convert. But I'm the first to put my hand up and say, this rule is not perfect. There are always going to have to be exceptions to it. And at the bottom of this uh, of, of this blog post, but then properly on the docs completed, will be a full-on table of everything and what gets converted and what doesn't in, in lax mode. So you can look it up rather than having, having to guess. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Starting a business is hard. By some estimates, over 90% of startups will go out of business in just their first year. With that in mind, Microsoft for Startups set out to understand what startups need to be successful and to create a digital platform to help them overcome those challenges. 
Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub was born. Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources to solve their startup challenges. The platform provides technology benefits, access to expert guidance and skilled resources, mentorship and networking connections, and much more. Unlike others in the industry, Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub doesn't require startups to be investor-backed or third-party validated to participate. Founders Hub is truly open to all. So what do you get if you join them? You speed up your development with free access to GitHub and Microsoft Cloud Computing Resources and the ability to unlock more credits over time. To help your startup innovate, Founders Hub is partnering with innovative companies like OpenAI, a global leader in AI research and development, to provide exclusive benefits and discounts. Through Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, becoming a founder is no longer about who you know. You'll have access to their mentorship network, giving you a pool of hundreds of mentors across a range of disciplines and areas like idea validation, fundraising, management and coaching, sales and marketing, as well as specific technical stress points. You'll be able to book a one-on-one meeting with the mentors, many of whom are former founders themselves. Make your idea a reality today with the critical support you'll get from Founders Hub. To join the program, just visit talkpython.fm slash foundershub, all one word. The link's in your show notes. Thank you to Microsoft for supporting the show. Before we move off strict mode, well, Clutch just has some kind things to say about Pydanix as it's um, one of the most useful packages ever. Congrats. That's really kind. But Ma- Sorry, Magnus, <laughs> Magnus as, as, is strict mode a global or a per model setting? Uh, or is it a, a usage when you actually do the parsing? Where, where do you set this? It's actually more powerful than that. It is either on a field or on an entire model, um, and you can set it at validation time. So it, it, you can configure it in config and configure it on a particular field, and then you can override it when you're uh, effectively calling the validator. I see. Maybe there's some situation where you're loading, you know, old bad data or something, and you want to say, no, go ahead and do this, but in the future, we're not accepting it, something like that. Right. And, and actually, one of the reasons I built that was to use it in the union, because we go through the validators the first time at, at validation time, insisting on strict mode. Um, but yeah, I, I don't. I, the, one of the other cases which will come up somewhere down here is we now have a is instance or a like pseudo is instance method which confirms whether data mi- matches our model. And there we automatically uh, use strict mode because for me it's kind of obvious that if you're doing is instance, you want you want that to be checked, want that to be strict. Moving on to the next part of the plan is built-in JSON support. Yeah. So this is this what is super. What are we talking about here? Yeah. So we're talking about uh, parsing JSON in Rust and parsing that JSON object uh, straight in within internally within the library uh, t- to the validator to then do the validation. Um, one of the big advantages that has is it solves the strict mode problem. So if you looked above, let's say we have the string of a, of a date, uh, let's say you know an ISO eight six zero one date of year uh, month day. Um, in JSON, it's obvious that that should be validated as a date. But if you pass that in from a Python object, it's not valid in strict mode, right? That's not that doesn't look anything like a date. Um, the problem if we had strict mode before without the the built-in JSON yeah, validation is you can't pass JSON with a date in it because there's no there, date. There's representation. no scenario where directly going from JSON works because JSON, for odd reasons, has no concept. It doesn't have date, uh, but it also date. doesn't have yeah. set or bytes or loads of stuff yeah. that you want to use in Python, right? So, so what one of the things that built-in JSON support gives us, as well as obviously a performance premium, is um, is that we can we can be sensible and say the uh, ISO 8601 date is a valid 
is a valid date in strict mode if it's coming from JSON, but but not from Python. Okay, yeah, and also just makes it faster, right? Because probably parsing JSON and Rust is pretty quick. It's it's really it's it's fast. Um, the but also we don't have to create uh, a Python dict and a Python list and all those Python types. Creating Python strings has like some significant overhead compared to to creating a string in uh, in Rust. Um, and in future, once I've got uh, v2 out, I intend to build a custom JSON parser, which is even faster and will give us line numbers in errors, which would be really nice because we don't have that now and we can't do that in, in v2 because Sir JSON, which I'm using, doesn't provide line numbers. But I hope in v2.1 or something, we will be able to add that. Amazing. Uh, really quick on the strict stuff as well. Manaj asks, what about strict int as a type? Is it going to be still around? That can stay around because that will just be, that'll be effectively. So um, it's probably worth this stage for people. If we, if you could just go to Pydantic Core's uh, repo, and we'll have a have a really brief look at what uh, what uh, it looks like. Uh, yeah, and then uh, just in the README, you'll see a example. So you, you see here, right? We up a bit. Up a bit. Um, you don't need to go into all the details of it, but the way that we define the model in uh, Pydantic Core is with this kind of like micro schema, um, which is defining in this case a type dict. Um, with a bunch of fields in it. Um, and here on a particular field, we could say strict true. So let's say on the int field, we could say strict true. Um, and that field will be strict while the rest isn't. So obviously what strict int, the Python, the Pydantic type will do when it becomes a, a schema, it, it will set uh, strict true on that particular field. Got it. So it effectively is a synonym for the, the more general way to say use strict mode, but only on this field, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just a marker effectively set strict yeah, on this field. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So in Pydantic, you can say I have, uh, say, an age, which is an int, and you can set it to a default value like zero, or you could say it's optional, set it to none, but you can also set it to a field, right, where you have additional information. Is that how you set strict mode? You set it to a field and say strict mode equals true or something like that? Uh, it's not built yet, so it's up for debate. But yeah, <laughs> effectively, strict will be a, a setting on field and obviously on config as well. And there will be these these types, which basically c contain some extra information like strict int, will just like set that strict to true for that field. Right, exactly. And for people who are not aware, config is an inner class of the Pydantic model that has a bunch of settings you can set, right? Yeah. And people do some unholy stuff of like modifying the base version of config and therefore doing global stuff, which I've never done. People seem to make it work. I don't know if it'll work <laughs> in V2. I don't promise it will. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that's interesting with this Pydantic core is now this is a dependency of Pydantic, right? And people could use it directly if they wanted, right? Like validating without a, a model, you don't have to define a class or any of those things. 100%. Uh, you don't have to define the class. If, if we look in the example we were, we were using there, we didn't have a class. We were just uh, validating to a type dict. So we would get back a dict, um, which obviously means we have full support for, for typings type dict type. It's also a little bit faster than than creating a model because we don't have to uh, create the class instance. We just create the dict that goes inside it. Um, yeah, they, they, people could use it without. Um, the The only concern, obviously, is whether or not, uh, like, obviously, it's now compiled and you have to be able to to run run that Rust code to be able to use Pydantic. We, with the v0.1 release of uh, Pydantic core yesterday, we have, I think, off the top of my head, 56 different binaries that we release for different environments. Um, the team of the guys at PyO3 and at Maturin, which is their way of, uh, of building, um, have been super helpful and um, yeah, will continue to support. So I, it doesn't worry me. 
We already have the full Pydantic core set of unit tests running in the browser um, via WebAssembly. So obviously, Python moving into the browser with WebAssembly is like the big new thing. I'm really excited about it. I wanted Pydantic core to work. And so Hood, uh, who's one of the uh, Pyodide maintainers, uh, I met at PyCon. He's been super helpful actually with uh, Pydantic core in general, but particularly with getting it to work. And at the risk of running a live demo, if you just go back to Pydantic core, I, uh, I know we're slightly changing subject, but I have to That's show you this because right. it makes me really excited. We go up and you go into WASM preview, which is one of the directories. Uh, yeah, WASM show. preview. Okay. And then Hit if you the go, index. No, if you click here, which just basically renders that index file, I hope it works. Uh, this oh, is work. uh, gotta work. It's gotta work. Um, this is it downloading uh, the binary, uh, downloading all the unit oh. tests, extracting them in Python, and running the full uh, test suite in the browser. Let me try. Let me try it one more time. Do it. Do it a second time. Yeah. So what we're seeing, if you click on this link, which I'll put in the show notes, is it downloads the C Python runtime in WebAssembly based on Pyodide. I'm guessing. And then, <laughs> then it downloads the the, okay. the archive zip, um, sends that to to Python. Obviously, we're running full C Python in the browser, so we can use the um, zip package to extract the zip, extract that into the virtual file system that uh, uh, Inscription gives us. Then we install the Wasm sixty Wasm thirty two wheel. Um, we basically do pip install, well micro pip, which is the way of installing stuff. And then we just call PyTest and off it goes and it runs the test. And you just yeah, see the test come by, standard colorized PyTest output, 1,465 tests pass in five seconds. Pretty fantastic. Yeah. So so it is it is a bit slower this than than full C Python, but it's I am still like really stoked for what what this is gonna mean uh uh to the future of Python and, and particularly to, to stuff like the context where you might use Pydantic of data processing and stuff. I don't think Python is gonna replace React. And I think it's a bit daft of people to suggest it will, because that's just going to lead to disappointment. But in contexts like this, it's, it's going to be super valuable. One of the things I'm, I'm really looking forward to is Pydantic 2's documentation. Every single example is going to be executable. So you can edit it and you can press run right inside the browser, which I think should help a lot. Have you been tracking PyScript? Yeah, I have been tracking PyScript. Uh, it's, it's obviously, it's, it's very cool. It's wrapping, it's wrapping Pyodide, which is where all the genius work is going on. Um, I'm using Pyodide directly, and I think I can continue to do that. But yeah, it's providing a, a bit of a like, yeah, super helpful wrapper for for those who find, uh, yeah, need a bit bit more help, and it's simple simple as a script tag, script tag. Question from David out in the audience asks: uh, With at least two of your projects switching to Rust, Pydantic, and Watch Files, do you see it as a general trend in the Python ecosystem? You know, and in, in things like. PyScript, which I just pulled out. Uh, I have a third one, actually, rtoml, which is a, a wrapper around the Rust toml library, which is a bit less necessary now when there is better toml support in Python. But a couple of years ago, when the main toml package was was not working for me, I, I wrapped that. Yes, I do. Uh, I was saying earlier that I think lots of the of the um, low-level tools should be, should be written in Rust. There is a massive space for someone to go out and build a raging fast uh, ASGI um, framework in Rust. Um, and obviously use a Rust web framework and just provide the provide ASGI interface. I'm looking forward to someone doing that um, to replace the, the likes of UVacorn. Not that to, you know UVacorn's great. Uh, it uses watch files, in fact. So I, I, not to criticize them, but like yeah, there are there are a bunch of low level stuff that where performance matters, which totally and like I think should and will end up being more in Rust. You're 
suggesting something like what you have for Flask, but everything is Rust except for just your view methods happen to be Python and click that together with Py, uh, Py03 or something like that. That's the like ultimate place to go to. Um, I think that the, the place to start would be, so we have WSGI, which many of you will heard of, which Flask and Django run on. We have ASGI, which is the async equivalent, uh, which is basically, it's great because it means that to build a, a web framework, you don't have to deal with HTTP. You deal with Addict, which has basically got fields and body and stuff like that, right? And some function to to get the rest of the body in the async case. Um, and that's what we have now. And we have like Starlet and UVicorn, which are both built by Encode and are both great, but they have a separation by using this consistent uh, um, protocol in between. And that allows really cool innovation on both sides. Uh, my suggestion is we don't have to get rid of rid of the, the Starlet or the fast API or that level, but we could do lots of the low-level HTTP passing uh yeah, in, in Rust. Before I get shouted down, I'm sure that uh, UVicorn and other such libraries are in turn using some optimized C for passing some of the some of the HTTP requests. So I don't have a number for the, for the speed up. But right, okay, but yeah, that's a, it's a very interesting idea. Uh, one thing I did want to sort of touch on here is you have you talk about how there's not going to be a pure Python implementation of the Pydantic core because it's already this complex specialized thing in Rust and why do it again in Python just so there might be some edge case of where it'll run. Uh, talk about maybe the platforms really quick that's supported for it. The WebAssembly one we just spoke about, which is fantastic. And I think that's going to open up a lot of possibilities the more stuff we have in WebAssembly. But yeah, there, there I think shouldn't be a big problem with this, right? That it's, there it's, shouldn't. I think with what we have there, we've we've covered the 99%. We're probably into the 99.9% .9 of, of platforms covered where people actually want to want to use this. The only place where I know that there's a slight uh, challenge is in on Raspberry Pi, where the normal install of uh, Raspberry or whatever it's called uses their own uh, wheelhouse effectively for installing wheels, which doesn't yet support uh, build of Rust. I'm sure, it will one day, and you can just tell it to use Py PyPI, and it will work. Again, this is the kind of thing where having built watch files and distributed that, I've worked through a lot, lot of these problems, and I'm pretty confident we're not going to find some really important framework, sorry, really important environment where it's just not going to work. And, and again, by as more packages adopt Rust, we'll we'll smooth out those problems, we'll learn from them, and we'll be able to to fix the edge cases. One benefit of that is previously Pydantic itself had some Cython and other things where it needed to be faster, but because now it can just use the Pydantic core, the what's left over is pure Python, right? Right, and one of the the big problem, well, there were two problems with that. It made the development process uh, a bit slow because we we basically took uh, vanilla Python. We compiled it with Scython and we got a kind of 50% speed up and we have to like do some slightly weird things. So occasionally you have to return union of just string to prevent Scython from casting that string to a native string and losing substrings, st stuff like that. Some some weird edge cases that bite people occasionally. Um, but the, the biggest problem is that that means that the Pydantic binaries are massive because the Scython compiled versions of, of Python code get really big and obviously... Uh, Moving the the performance critical bit into Pydantic core gets rid of that concern, and, and Pydantic itself becomes a pure uh, Python package, easier to hack on. CI will run faster. The whole process should be sped up, and it'll be much smaller. Uh, let's go. I, I jumped around because I did want to talk about this compiled stuff. Right, you'll just get that as a wheel. Almost everybody they won't really know or care. Right, they just pip install it. It doesn't matter that it's Rust. It just downloads as a binary. Right. Right. Exactly. Same as same as loads of packages you use now, Pydantic right. included, are compiled. Whatever, yeah. Right, they're all compiled, yeah. right? And if if you 
if there is no wheel available, then uh, PIP will do its very best to try and compile that for you. So in the case of Pydantic Core, it will, if you if you were in some crazy environment where we didn't have a binary, you need Rust installed, and then PIP will take care of compiling it for you. Uh, but like I say, that's going to be super rare. And, and realistically, if you have that problem, come and create an issue and we'll, we'll add the binary for you. Picking up back on the plan here, you have required versus nullable changes. Um, we, we missed out one of the really cool things above. I don't know if I'm sorry if we're moving order, which is the, the removing of the, the necess, uh, necessity for a model. So, so as, I, as we saw earlier in the Pydantic Core uh, example, we, we can validate. So in Pydantic 1, everything was in the end a Pydantic model. So we looked earlier at like fast API passing parameters. In the background, fast API is creating a model, doing a validation against that, then extracting stuff from the model and, and passing it to the function or whatever else. Um, similarly, if you wanted to parse a type dict, you basically somewhere in the background, there's a model. We validate against that model. Then we take the dict from that model and, and pass it back to the user. That, uh, had some really confusing and annoying edge cases, but obviously the main thing was it, it did have a performance impact. Now, there is no fundamental kind of base type in Pydantic uh, core. You can validate an int or a string or a union of different stuff or a model or a data class or a type dict, and you just create your schema and off you go. Fantastic. So basically, there's this low-level fast engine that'll just validate all sorts of things if you want to use it directly, right? And the one thing important to add just while we're on that is there is stuff that's not going to be in Pydantic Core. I don't think we'll add the URL type, for example. There'll be some, you know, there'll be some uh, custom types that we don't add. And obviously, if you want to implement your own types, then uh, the way that we get around that is that Pydantic Core has a basically a function validator, which is basically call a function, uh, either having done some validation before or after, and uh, return the result. So that's how we're gonna we're gonna provide a way to build validators without writing without writing Rust. Required versus nullable? Yeah, uh, probably a, a like hangover from, again, me uh, building Pylantic on my own for what, what I needed. And also from, you know, it's kind of predated data classes, at least in some of the work. And so there was, it, the, the real problem for me was the word optional and the word, idea that you had a field that was required, but was literally called optional. Um, obviously, I'm not, Pylantic's not the only library that has that problem. Uh, and the, the real solution is uh, is the pipe operator, which is the new way of doing unions. None involves not using the word optional. You can obviously also get around it by using union of string uh, int. But the, the point is that if you just have a field that is uh, optional int, it is required but can be none. Um, and that's just that's really just to, to match uh, data classes and, and other contexts. Yeah, uh, the, the new way to express optional like string pipe none versus optional string. Yeah, that 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 kind of set you free to to think about this differently. Yeah. Also, I, I mean, I literally asked Guido about it at at PyCon, and he was like, he didn't say yes, we made a mistake. He said that's fixed by having uh, having pipe none, which is a roundabout way of saying we <laughs> kind of made a mistake back then. But you know, typing has come a massively long way since someone settled on the word optional. So I get it, but it has been a source of confusion that's now being being like cleared up. Yeah, for sure. And there's other things that have been uh, changed as well, right? You used to have to say from typing import capital L list to return a lowercase list, but it'd be a capital L list. And now it's like, you know what? Lowercase list works too, <laughs> right? You don't have to now we just have the weird site case of any where there isn't yes. any function, but you can't use it. But we won't we won't go down that line. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Want to talk about validated functions? Yeah, I, I, I touched on them just now. Uh, 
and like I said, we have you, we have the idea of uh, before. So we do a validation before, and then we pass the result of that validation to a function. We have validate afterwards. Um, and plain, which doesn't doesn't do any validation, just calls the function. The most exciting thing, and probably the, one of the things I'm most stoked for in uh, Pydantic v2, is these wrap validators. So you will have you'll have read about middleware in, in Django or or any web framework. We have this idea of an onion where we call a validator, sorry, call a function which takes a handler to call the next function. Um, we have the same same thing here in in uh, Pydantic v2 where we have these. I've called them wrap validators. They take a handler to a function and then they call that. The power here is obviously we can we can do some logic before the validator. We can do some logic after. We can catch errors. We can return a default value. It gives us like loads of uh, flexibility to do to do more powerful stuff. Yeah, you basically can do whatever you want and decide to delegate down to the the chain of handlers if you want, or skip it. Right? You say, "Ah, this this looks good to me. We're just gonna uh, return a value here." In particular, with with Pylantic one, there was no way to skip. Uh, yeah, to skip validation if you had a validator. So, uh, which obviously caused a slowdown. If let's say you had date time now, you still had to call the validator, which sure enough got a date time and was happy, but you had to go through that logic. Whereas here, we know it's a date time because we've we've written that code. Um, there is a there is the potential for people to make mistakes and not call uh, the handler uh, if they wanted to return the raw value. Then that we can't break we can't stop them. But that's Python. There aren't there aren't always guardrails. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's some of the power is in the flexibility. All right, but that that lets you do bad things as well. Yeah, I mean, we could. So sorry to interrupt. Uh, we could theoretically do some crazy thing where we checked if the handler was called and raised an error or a warning. But I think I think at this point we let people make their own mistakes if they if they insist. Well, and you also would pay a performance price for all the places where it's used correctly. Yeah, more powerful aliases. Yeah, maybe, this is a feature that I yeah, saw. Aliases are, and then uh, yeah, then what, what's the use here? Aliases are, are the idea that we we have a name for what we want to want to call a variable in our code, but we know that in the real world where the data is coming from, say on the front end, it's got a different name. Often it's camel case uh, on the front end because it's JavaScript, and we want to use uh, snake case uh, in Python. But also, you know, we're using some API, and we want it has to be called something when the data is coming in. Um, and so we had that in Pydantic uh, v1, the idea that you could have a field that was called something else externally. Um, but this is actually a feature I saw in um, the Rust CERD library, which is their, their, the main validation library, this idea of flatten. So basically take a value, not just from the top level dicks, but from deep down in some object we pass it and use that for the field. And so again, right. this is one I, I of the things- I see this thing kind of stuff. Yeah, sorry. I see this stuff all the time where you will get some huge response from an API, but you're like, I just really want this little part here. And so what you end up having to do is say, okay, capture that result as a dictionary, then navigate down to the three levels and get the sub object and then pass that to Pydantic. And here you could just say the alias is sort of traverse that down and, and start from there, right? Exactly. And we get nice advantages. Like if that thing's not there, we don't get an error because the, the get, you know, none has no, you know, get method or whatever it might be. Uh, Pydantic will take care of just saying that feels missing if, let's say, uh, Baz was a was a string. So therefore, uh, couldn't get Baz second element, uh, you know, quarks, whatever that is. Yeah. So in the case you have here, you you say the alias is a list, and the list is Baz, and then two and quarks. These are things that are appearing in this JSON document. Yeah. The dictionary. So so that list is is effectively some location. But it, what you'll notice again is there's actually another outer list because we can have more than one of these. Um, we can have it as deep as we like. Uh, sorry, as many different aliases to try as you want. Yeah, so this actually traverses 
down. And the two means go to the third item because it's zero based in the list and then look for that, that element. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. And again, this is the kind of thing that we can do because Pydantic calls in Rust and the, the overhead of uh, having aliases of, of multiple different types is basically absolutely minimal because it's a, in Rust, it's, an, it's a single enum lookup. And if we have a simple alias of a string, we don't need to worry about any of that crazy logic to recurse down. We just take the top ele- you know, an element out of the top level dictionary and move on. Jonas asks, would this solve when my app gets Pascal case? I want to work with snake case and then return a camel case. <laughs> is there some way to express that kind of stuff with aliases? This does not, but we had, there was a pull request uh, for Pylantic 2, for Pylantic 1, that where we had load alias and dump alias. So a different alias when we were exporting. Um, and I, I do intend to support that. So this particular feature is kind of related, but won't solve it on its own. But yeah, I do in, intend to allow two different aliases. Speaking of loading and getting back out, improvements to dumping, serialization, export. Yeah, there's been, uh, there's a bunch of stuff here that people have wanted for a long time, in particular, being able to create a, like a JSON compliant dictionary, um, but also people wanting to do their own customization. Again, my hope is that because that that dumping logic will be implemented in Rust, we can get like, I'm going to call it kind of zero cost extra features, because in the end, it's like, should be just an enum lookup uh, to, to do the complex stuff. And if we're not doing the complex stuff, we go the, we go the optimized path. Um, yeah, there's, there's, what, what we've realized is there's a, there are a whole bunch of different things that people might want. They might want the raw data, uh, including, including submodels. They might want what Dict does now, which is c- recursively convert uh, models into dictionaries, but otherwise keep stuff unchanged. They might want a JSON compliant uh, uh, Dict, as I was saying, or they might want full serialization to JSON. And obviously, that last one in particular, we want to be quite well optimized. Well, we want them all to be, but uh, yeah, effectively. The last one's the, the most important, yeah. Yeah, we, we want a uh, we want to be able to provide someone complete flexibility without it harming uh, performance in the case where they're not using that, and that's that's what I think uh, Pylantic Core has allowed already on validation, and I hope will allow on on serialization. All right, we're getting a little short on time, so let's maybe uh, yeah. <laughs> let's uh, why don't you pick out some of the the remaining stuff that you want to focus on? I think maybe the most important is a model namespace cleanup. What do you think? I mean, I think context that I was just going to mention here, that's going to be another amazingly powerful um, escape hatch for some of the fun, some of the things people want to do. Uh, obviously, the main use of it is for is for allowing validation against some dynamic data, but you can also update that thing. It's just a Python object. So if you wanted some case, we were talking about wrap validators earlier, where you've got errors and you want to raise a warning, you could append to context the warnings. Um, so that is another super powerful escape hatch without, without harming performance for, for everyone else. How it's going to work with Fast API, where the model where you do the validation before uh, calling user code, I don't know yet, but I'm sure yeah, Sebastian how do you will provide will find that data that is the context, right? You have another dependency, I guess, in Fast API uh, lingo that generates your context for that particular call. Yeah, I was thinking some of the dependency injection stuff, which is not very popular in Python in general, but that might be the way you might register. Here's how to, to get the context for these types of models or something. Yeah, I mean, Sebastian will decide, but that's what I'm sure we'll find a way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. One quick question just on usage here. Like, I see that you're saying user and then model validate JSON with this data. And you could also just say user star star data. I know you're doing this different here so you can pass the context, but what what would you say is the, the best way to, to create these objects so, that so kind of data? Model validate JSON is going to uh, be there and it's going to be named that or something close to that. 
And the point is that's taking a string of JSON, or in this in this case, bytes of JSON, and uh, validating it directly. We talked about that earlier on. Um, so that's not the same as user star star right, post right, data because right. it's bytes. Um, there's also model validate Python, which is effectively the same as model uh, star star data, except that because obviously we basically don't trust anything you pass to it. That's all external data. You can't pass context that way. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Um, which right. I think comes onto your your question about the cleanup of the of the namespace. There are some breaking changes, and w there's a decent number about sort of renaming some of these these model methods and stuff, right? Yeah, I'm not too worried about these because we're going to leave the old functions there with a with a depreciation warning on all of them. So that will be quite easy. The stuff that's going to be really hard in terms of breaking changes is like where, for example, I've talked earlier about sets no longer being coercible to a list. There's no way to give a warning about that really without absolutely peppering Pydantic core with with like warning logic that that would be horrific. Um, so there are going to be the things that are going to be most difficult for people are going to be like silent breaking changes. I'm not particularly worried about functions that give you a warning when you call them and say use the new name. It's going to be the silent stuff or the you know the fundamental changes in behavior that are going to be hard. But again, I I, I, I there's no way to make Pydantic better without doing that. Fair. I think it's worth pointing out the error descriptions now have yeah. a documentation link. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think that's going to be uh, super powerful for people. I don't know anyone who's ever used uh, Cargo uh, and Clippy, which are the Rust tools for, for broadly speaking, linting and, and compiling. Um, whenever you get an error, there's a, there's a link basically to give you more information. And obviously, a lot of these lot of these links will be being shown to developers through APIs, and we can't provide all the information we might like in a like one sentence message. And so we're going to have these have. Uh, a bit of Pydantic's uh, docs dedicated to information on every single warning, every single error message, and, and what can happen. Um, it leads to another interesting question about Pydantic 2 and what we do with the documentation and the licensing of it. So Pydantic is definitely going to stay MIT licensed, might be dual li licensed Apache 2, if someone can tell me why that's necessary, but it's going to stay you know, permissively licensed. But I'm, I'm kind of becoming aware that the documentation, which is valuable and will get better and more valuable, currently MIT licensed and some company could could take it all and bang it on their their uh, their domain totally legally. So I might change the documentation license to something a bit more restrictive to say, for example, you can't take all of these uh, error message uh, uh, documentation and just put them on your own domain. Or at least we have we have some way of making that possible without make, allowing people to commercialize that. Mostly because it would get really confusing if there was Pydantic's documentation is up to date and FUBAR company who publish the whole same thing, but leave it out of date. And they both come up on Google. It's interesting to think about having this mixed model in your repo, because obviously yeah. you want Pydantic, the library, to be wide open for people. But then there's this supporting stuff and, you I might mean, want to it, treat differently. Yeah, and, and I know that the, the, the Linux distributions are going to be super spiky if any of that stuff that's not MIT licensed got distributed, right? Because their they're, uh, package managers have to have stuff that's, that's you know, correctly licensed. I mean, obviously, they allow stuff that's uh, like GPL or something. But I, I'm I'm thinking about something. Problem is, GPL doesn't stop you publishing documentation. So yeah, it's an open question. I don't want to have a separate repo for documentation because it'll make creating a PR that much you know higher friction. But uh, I think I need to talk to an IP lawyer before I say anything authoritative <laughs> on this. Is what I guess I'm getting to. Yeah, I'm I'm feeling entirely unqualified to to <laughs> give any advice on this, but. It's tricky, right? As we were talking before we hit record, like if you have a sub -li a license in a subfolder, 
does that license override the the more broad one? I do you have to go and change your broad license, your MIT license to say here's the MIT license except for this section of the the repo. This doesn't apply to see its license. You know, yeah, it's weird. I presume that the the big projects, the Django's of this world, and and the Num NumPy must have must have thought about this stuff. So probably worth doing some research on them. But I'm thinking out loud, and I probably need to come up with a conclusive <laughs> answer before <laughs> sure. before I say more. Well, it's it's called a plan, not a release, right? Okay, uh, we talked about the Hydante becoming its own license. One that I want to talk about is the from ORM and friends. I guess, um, yeah, maybe talk about this these sections here. Some of these. Yes, changes. so there's a whole bunch of improvements here that we could talk about for for an hour, probably on each one, let alone let alone full. But <laughs> but the the from ORM was a was a uh, was a bit of a strange case where it was you had to have a config flag and then there was a method on a uh, on a model. Um, Pydantic Core has this built-in from attributes power, which basically allows it to recurse through some Python object that is not a dictionary instead of a dictionary if, if you switch that on. So we talked earlier about aliases and about hunting down through some complex objects, normally of dictionaries, if that came in from JSON, but like in lots of contexts, and ORM in particular, it's it's not, right? So from attributes, it lets you basically do that same finding things in an object from something that's not a dictionary via basically get attra, not get item, effectively. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because then you could just pass any class that you got from anywhere. You don't have to find a way to get it to a dictionary. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, Pydantic should should take care of that and give you nice warnings when it when at like the third level it gets a gets the right error or it gets a it gets a type error. It'll tell you type error, and if it's an attribute error, it'll say not found. So yeah. got it. Yeah. So from ORM to me, that felt like well, here's a thing, a way to integrate it with SQL Alchemy or something like that. But this is just more general to say we're moving to something that just says, given any object, just go yeah, get it. I mean, from ORM was a, was a dumb name. You're quite right. It came exactly from from uh, compatibility with ORMs and SQL Alchemy, but in particular. But yeah, in what we're actually doing is taking stuff from attributes. So the new name makes more sense and the new functionality is like a lot more powerful. Would from attributes work on properties in addition to fields? It should do, yeah. Yes, it does. There's a unit test for it. It does. Okay. Oh, fantastic. That's really cool because your your class might have computed elements, but you want them to show up in your JSON, right? Or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, cool. All right. I think I think that might be it. I well, no, one more question I have for you. When I was doing C, C, C sharp, I remember thinking about numerical types a lot. Is it sufficient to have an int here? Do I need a long? Is it an unsigned long? How much data could it be? What happens if if I have an int and I increment it? And now it's negative two point one billion or whatever. Like, there's all these weird scenarios that go away in Python because Python uses a slower but way more flexible numerical type, right? All the stuff happening in Rust, I feel like you might need to think about that a little bit. Yeah, so it's it's all uh, I32 in the case of in the case of ints. So we're limited to whatever. So I64, sorry, I64. So whatever the limit is on on I64, um, that does mean that you can't pass in. Yeah, you had it there. Whatever whatever two to the sixty four is. There we are. <laughs> there's the number. Um, I don't know how to say that number, but it's like a million big. trillion times nine or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You would have trouble with. You could use a. You could use a uh, functional validator. You could find a way around it if you had to. But yeah, I, I think that's a price worth worth paying for the fact that we can do internet integer uh, stuff really quickly, right? And we can do bounds yeah. checks much more much more quickly. Um, yeah, and we have obviously we have nice errors in there. If you do pass in something bigger than that, or if you pass uh, float inf, 
Uh, again, we'll get infinity, same as we would if you've got a number above that, or float nan. Again, you'll get it. You know, that's not allowed. So those cases are, are all taken care of and they give you a nice error. And there would be an escape, ha- escape hatch if you really had to. Right. So the escape hatch could be you might write a validator that checks is the number in Python it checks is the number bigger than this limit. If it is, raise an exception, say number too big or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there isn't actually an escape hatch in the case of JSON because we have to do the we have to do the parsing before we get there. So you'd have to you'd have to pass your JSON externally and then pass it in as a Python object and do something weird. But it's uh, uncommon again, that you get insanely large numbers like this. I think that the insanely large numbers like that come up when people try and break things. Uh, almost yeah, they try to right? break like, things or they're trying to do some some odd math problem where like I'm trying to use recursion to compute and see how many prime, you know, some, something like that. But in the general day to day of I'm accepting like user input over right. an mean, API, uh, you know, what I would really. say is that as a Unix timestamp in milliseconds is beyond 999 in years, right? It's, it's beyond a date that anyone's ever going to want to use. Um, so I'm, I, I, I don't see that being a problem really. I don't either. Uh, actually, I think there's probably, I don't know how to make it happen, but there's probably some interesting performance story for Python getting faster if it could work with real numerical types rather than these super flexible numerical types. You know, a lot of times you'll see examples of math and it's like, well, okay, this, this uh, you know, pi long object thing, instead of working just with, you know, true ints and floats and stuff, really slows it down. So I don't know, I, I see a future maybe someday where Python actually adopts in these sort of limited types like this potentially. But uh, isn't that what kind of libraries like number are, do- number are doing? They're allowing you to selectively compile a function without going completely off on a tangent. I think right, that, that's exactly. one approach. And, and there you explicitly say whether it's an, an end or, or stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. I think the other option would be like, you know, another way would be to say you don't want to be writing Python at that point because you want to be able, you want all the tools available in Rust syntax to allow you to, to say all the stuff you want to be able to say and do integer overflow nicely. So the other option would be at some point there'll be a way to basically write Rust even more easily than now inside Python. Those of us who are using PyCharm and are you know really lucky that we get PyCharm and we can get basically syntax highlighting in any random string, that doesn't seem too crazy. Um, yeah, and obviously even more so if you were porting a file. So I think there are lots of ways around it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe more stuff to come together with the WebAssembly feature. Who knows? Anyway, a lot, lot of stuff to think about. I think this is this. I didn't bring this up because I feel like this is a problem or anything. I brought it up just because I wanted people to be maybe aware that there are some slightly different data types at play here since it's going through Rust. Yeah, I think it's important to see that under the hood we are doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so I've we didn't talk about date, uh, time, date, time, time, uh, time delta validation, but I've built a library in Rust for doing that. Um, a bit faster than all the ones I could find that is, for me, uh, makes the right compromise called speed date. Um, okay. And that that is having to deal with exactly those overflow problems. And I, I fuzzed this library a great deal and found a whole bunch of overflow issues by fuzzing it. Because, yeah, when you're doing raw parsing in uh, in Rust, you have to think about that stuff that those of us who come from a Python background haven't even thought about. You know, the yeah. idea that adding two numbers is scary and might result in a panic. Is, is, is yeah, new. I honestly I hadn't thought about it for a while. It's kind of nice to just not have to worry about those things. You used to just always have to consider, you know, is it is it okay to add? Is it okay to multiply these things? Because even if that's just an intermediate value, something insane might happen along the way, right? Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for working on Pydantic, putting it out there. I know it's made my code and my projects much nicer. 
72,000 other people agree, it seems like. No problem. Thank you very much. And thank you so much to all of the people who who help with Pydantic in, in every way from from like Eric and Sebastian and people who who work like work on it quite a lot, but also to like all the people who create issues and, and submit one pull request that like makes my job a lot more fun that it's not just me sitting in a sitting in an ivory tower doing it on my own. It's much more fun to work on projects with people. Absolutely. Magnus says, thanks to the great show and all the work on Pydantic. Looking forward to Pydantic too. Right on. Now, before we get out of here, final two questions. If you're going to write some Python code, work on Pydantic, uh, what editor do you pull up? I pull up PyCharm. I'm a complete convert. I completely rely on it. Uh, yeah. Right on. And notable IPI or even uh, cargo package, I suppose. Whatever, whatever you want to shout out to some external library out there that you think is pretty cool. It's not going to be. It's not going to be particularly interesting because we've talked about it already. But PyO3, I'm like forever impressed by what those guys have done, and obviously they've made what I'm working on here possible. And they've been really helpful for me when I've asked dumb Rust questions. So yeah, thank you to them. And yeah, if you're ever thinking about getting into Rust, doing it from Python is a really, really neat way where when you can't work out what the hell's going on, you can kind of fall back to Python sometimes. There's an audience question a while back about uh, any resources that you might recommend for learning Rust or on the journey to, to getting to Pyo3 and so on. No, I'm, I'm like, people always ask me, what, how did I learn to code and where did I do it? And I basically smashed my head against the wall until it compiled. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. That's a pretty common way. Okay, final call to action. People are interested, excited. They have feedback, something like that. They want to try out Pydantic 2. Uh, particularly if you're in using an unusual environment, install Pydantic Core right now. Pip install Pydantic Core um, and just run the simple example. There's one, for example, on the release. Check it compiles, and if you find an environment where it doesn't work, so it not compiles but runs, let me know because that'll be easier to fix sooner rather than later. And then, most of all, once we get to to the betas of and alphas of Pydantic v2, please come and try it then because again, it'll be a lot easier to fix it before it's released than after. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll do a lot of shouting on Twitter about that when the time comes. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Samuel, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, you bet. As always, see you later. Cheers. Bye bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Listen to an episode of Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. Compiler unravels industry topics, trends, and things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with the people who know it best. Subscribe today by following talkpython.fm slash compiler. Starting a business is hard. Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub provides all founders at any stage with free resources and connections to solve startup challenges. Apply for free today at talkpython.fm slash foundershub. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.